Sometimes in life, the worst outcome for someone is to win. And I think there's little question that for John Quincy Adams, his winning the presidency in 1824 fell into that category. This win would also have lasting ramifications for Henry Clay, as well as his tenure as Secretary of State, as the move which was thought to have been the stepping stone to the presidency turned out to be a stone that weighted him down and kept him from achieving that highest office in the land. Hello and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Welcome back. Though it has been a month since the last episode, I've been hard at work during this time and am hopefully better situated to be able to launch new episodes every two weeks for the foreseeable future. Hopefully you've also taken the opportunity during this hiatus to check out my other podcast, The Presidencies of the United States. If not, information about that is available on all of my social media. On Facebook and Twitter, my handle is Harrison Podcast, all one word. Or you can go directly to the website, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, and listen to episodes there, or find the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. But enough of that, it's time to get back to Henry Clay. As mentioned back in episode 37, Andrew Jackson's supporters would charge throughout the Adams presidency that Henry Clay had made a corrupt bargain with Adams to deliver him the presidency in order to secure himself the position of Secretary of State. They would not stop there, though. Adams's first State of the Union address and its grandiose plans for internal improvements, participation in the Panama Congress, and a national observatory would provide them with plenty of fodder for attack. One old adversary of Clay's would take particular joy at striking out at the administration. If you'll recall way back in episode 33, we talked about how one of the first things Clay did when he was first elected Speaker of the House was take on a curmudgeonly character named John Randolph of Roanoke. Well, Randolph was still around, but had moved over to the Senate by the time the Adams administration started up in 1825. As described by Clay Bogg for Robert Remini, when the Senate started debating the administration's nominations of representatives to the Panama Congress in early 1826, Randolph delivered, quote, one of his most outrageous performances. In a rambling, sometimes incoherent, funny, insulting, and devastating speech, filled with literary and classical allusions, among other odds and ends, and delivered with delightful insouciance, he roamed among a number of topics, including the Panama Congress, other parts of the President's message, the Constitution, and the corrupt bargain. The Panama mission, he chuckled, had been brought about by the manufacture of letters purportedly sent from Latin America. In reality, he said, it was a Kentucky cuckoo's egg laid in a Spanish-American nest. It was a stinging and nasty assault, one of a long series of verbal blasts at Clay. Only this one was far worse than any of the others. It touched a very sensitive nerve, as it included not only charges of bribery and mismanagement, but forgery as well. Unlike in his previous confrontations with Randolph, Clay was not present in the chamber to counterattack and he quickly came to feel that there was only one way to get satisfaction. Thus, Clay wrote a note to Randolph on March 31, 1826, challenging Randolph to a duel. Though dueling had its critics, and had in fact been declared illegal in numerous localities, it still held a strong place in Southern society. Thus, though Randolph felt that he could not be held responsible by a member of the executive branch for something that he said in a Senate debate, he accepted. Clay spent the evening prior with his family, with Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri stopping by for a visit. Though Benton had thrown in his hat with Jackson, he felt it only right to visit, as he had known Clay for years during their congressional service, and Benton was Lucretia Clay's first cousin. 
The next day, Ben would go to Randolph before the duel and tell him about his visit to Clay's home the night prior, and the family gathered with him, placing special emphasis on Clay's youngest son, who had been asleep on a sofa during his visit. Randolph finally said, quote, I shall do nothing to disturb the sleep of the child or the repose of the mother. The two men faced each other on the Virginia side of the Potomac River that afternoon at a spot chosen for Randolph, who felt that, quote, only the chosen ground of Virginia was sacred enough to receive his blood. They took their places, and the call came to fire. Both shots, as intended, missed their targets. Despite Ben's appeal, Clay wished to fire again, and so they did. Again, as intended, neither bullet hit the supposed target, though Clay's went through Randolph's coat. Randolph, on the second shot, fired in the air and declared, I do not fire at you, Mr. Clay. They came together and shook hands, with Randolph remarking, quote, You owe me a coat, Mr. Clay, to which the secretary replied, I am glad the debt is no greater. Though ultimately only a minor incident in Clay's long life, it does seem to symbolize the next few years for the man from Kentucky, as his life increasingly became more about confrontation than compromise. Certainly, confrontation was in store as 1828 grew ever closer. As this election has been covered extensively by others, and as it would draw us further from our focus on Clay than is prudent, I won't go into much detail about the contest except to note Clay's role in the campaign. And yes, unlike in modern campaigns where political appointees are expected to not take a role in a re-election campaign, Clay was very much involved in the efforts of the Adams faction against Andrew Jackson's supporters, now known as the Democratic Party. Jackson had neither forgiven nor forgotten the wrong that he claimed done him by Adams and Clay, and he took to regularly reminding others of the corrupt bargain as well. One of the folks that he reminded, Carter Beverly, issued a public letter in March 1827 outlining Jackson's assertions that Clay's friends had approached him as the previous election was being decided in the House in an attempt to make a deal with Jackson for the presidency. Jackson, according to Beverly, quote, most indignantly rejected the proposition. He would see the whole earth sink under him before he would bargain or intrigue for the presidency. Whether any of this ever happened or not was debatable, as we shall soon see, but it had the immediate effect of bringing the issue back to the forefront of the public conversation. As people, including Clay, started to question the account, Jackson wrote a letter on June 5th confirming, at the very least, that he had been informed by a, quote, member of Congress of high respectability that there had been collision between the supporters of Adams and Clay to swing the election to Adams in return for Clay becoming Secretary of State. Clay, in turn, issued a written address to the public on June 29th, then delivered remarks at a public dinner in Lexington on July 12th, refuting the charges, and, turning back to the charge that Clay and his supporters had attempted to make a deal with Jackson, asked why it had taken Jackson two years to reveal these details, as he had been, quote, profoundly silent until recently. In Clay's argument, Jackson, quote, has been faithless as a senator of the United States, or he has lent himself to the circulation of an atrocious calumny. Clay wrapped up his speech by saying that, quote, I demand the witness that Jackson claimed and await the event with fearless confidence. The witness ended up being a future president in his own right, James Buchanan of Pennsylvania, who came out with his own letter admitting to the conversation with Jackson, but revealing that he had acted on his own in an attempt to curry favor with both Jackson and Clay rather than as an authorized agent for Clay. Buchanan's letter infuriated Jackson and delighted Clay. 
Clay would continue his defense at the end of December 1827 when he published a pamphlet entitled An Address of Henry Clay to the Public, containing certain testimony and refutation of the charges against him, made by General Andrew Jackson touching the last presidential election. There would be little in terms of new arguments in the pamphlet, but it would summarize Clay's defense of his actions in 1825 and hopefully exonerate him in the court of public opinion. That was not to be, however, as his friends in the Kentucky legislature would bungle their attempts to support him and instead help to initiate an investigation that would reveal attempts in the past to bribe editors to support him in print and to bring to public light his criticism in private letters of his opponents in the 1824 election, including the president to whom he had hitched his wagon. As elections in the summer and fall of 1827 were resulting in bad news for the Adams faction, now taking to calling themselves the National Republicans, Clay began to collaborate with Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts to shore up the new party, which was described as an, quote, amalgamation of all those groups that supported the American system and John Quincy Adams, and that fears the consequences of an administration presided over by Jackson. As a reminder, as it's been a bit since we talked about this, the American system was that system of internal improvements, supporting American business through protective tariffs, and building up a strong military that Clay had advocated starting back in 1816 and that we discussed in episode 36. Robert Remini, biographer of Clay, Jackson, and Webster, would assert that, quote, Webster and Clay made a splendid team. Webster pursued those businessmen who he believed appreciated the value of the American system and all it might provide in the development of an industrial nation, and who could be coaxed into offering contributions. And it should be noticed that in pursuing this much-needed cash, Clay recognized that the cities were the best places to locate the individuals who could provide it in the huge amounts necessary to run a successful campaign. After the money had been obtained, Clay then suggested to Webster where it should be sent to do the most good. Party organizational functions and campaign planning that takes untold numbers of staffers and consultants to do for modern political parties was organized and implemented by Clay and Webster while serving in their day jobs in the executive and legislative branches respectively of the federal government. For all their efforts, though, it just wouldn't be enough. As noted by historian Mary Hargreaves, quote, Viewed in retrospect, the presidential election was anticlimactic. The Jacksonians had shaped their strategy and initiated the media to give it structure by the spring of 1827. The friends of the administration were still struggling to develop such an organizational framework during the following autumn. Indeed, despite Clay and Webster's considerable skills, they were countered on the Democratic side by the man who would come to be known as the Little Magician, a man well-known to Harrison podcast listeners. Martin Van Buren, as you may recall from way back in Episode 8, had favored William Crawford in the election of 1824. But as Crawford's campaign floundered, Van Buren learned that, moving into the next election cycle, he, quote, needed a presidential candidate responsive to the will of the people as expressed through state leaders, not an aspirant born of the divisiveness in Washington. In the 1828 election, that was clearly Andrew Jackson. Thus, Van Buren met with Vice President John C. Calhoun, a fellow supporter of Jackson, over the Christmas holidays in Virginia in 1826 to plan how to rally support for and organize a Jackson campaign. Key to a Jackson victory was an alignment of New York and Virginia, both prominent states in the Union, and the source of 60 electoral votes in those two states alone to work towards the 131 needed for victory. 
against Adams, who is seen as being, quote, devoid of popular appeal and seemingly indifferent to his public image. It didn't seem like securing both of those states would be difficult. Though Adams and Jackson would end up splitting the votes of New York, with Jackson getting 20 and Adams 16, Jackson ran away with the vote in the rest of the nation, earning 178 electoral votes total to Adams' 83. This one would not be going into the House for a decision. Again, as with 1824, Jackson earned the majority of the popular vote with just over 56% of the votes cast, with Jackson securing, quote, substantial support from all sections of the country, including New England. More people than ever before voted in this election, with nearly 1.56 million votes being cast, a huge jump from the 361,000 votes cast in 1824. Before you ask, no, there weren't that many babies born between 1803 and 1807 to account for that difference, or that many new citizens naturalized in the previous four years. Part of the astounding turnout had to do with the political and electioneering apparatus that had been set up by each of the two parties. But part of it came from more states allowing the electors to be chosen directly by the people, rather than by the state legislatures. Indeed, only two of the 24 states voting in 1828 would have their electors chosen by the state legislature rather than popular ballot. Though the right to vote was still, by and large, severely restricted, this did represent a large expansion of suffrage when it came to the presidential election. And Jackson himself would see this victory at the polls as solidifying his close relationship with the people. This election proved that the days of the choice of presidents by an exclusive congressional caucus and the political elite were forever at an end, and any future presidential candidates would have to adjust to this new world. These thoughts would be with Clay as the new president assumed office, and Clay moved into an unanticipated but hopefully temporary retirement from public life. Now, he needn't have retired completely from public life, as outgoing President Adams offered him a position on the Supreme Court, but Clay declined the appointment. His reasons may have had to do with his future political ambitions, but it was also likely that his health and his family had something to do with the decision. As mentioned in episode 38, Clay's tenure as Secretary of State was marked by ill health. On top of the stresses and strains of his office, he also had to deal with concerns about his family. His two older sons, Theodore and Thomas, would prove to be troublesome. Clay had taken Theodore with him to Washington, hoping that his direct influence would help to guide him to better behaviors. But instead, as noted by his father, Theodore turned to gambling, quote, and lost $500. That sum I did refuse to pay. Meanwhile, Clay wrote of Thomas that, quote, he begins to show at his early age, 24, the effects of a dissipated life. As Clay was leaving office, Thomas would be arrested and thrown into jail for not paying a hotel bill in Philadelphia, along with other debts that he had racked up. Clay would send money to pay the bill and bail him out, but he had little hope of redemption for either young man, as he would tell his third son, Henry Clay Jr., in 1827, quote, I am the more anxious about you because I have not much hope left about my two older sons. Henry Jr., described as, quote, a shy and modest student, had begun his studies at West Point. But with Andrew Jackson, his father's sworn enemy, assuming office as commander-in-chief, it was doubtful that the young Clay would have much of a chance at a career in the Army. Thus, he planned to turn his sights to the study of law following his graduation from the military academy, to which his father offered advice and encouragement. Quote, to attain the highest place, or even a respectable rank, in the profession of law, you must make up your mind to labor incessantly. I never studied half enough. 
I always relied too much upon the resources of my genius. You must not, however, let your eagerness to enter upon the study of law occasion you to remit your efforts in your present pursuits. As he sought to improve his family's future prospects, so too did Clay have to set himself to the task of building himself back up. Going into the new year of 1829, a visitor to the Clay's home described coming in to find Clay, quote, stretched out on the sofa and covered, face and all, by a dark cloak that looked like a black pall. Suddenly, he awakened and pulled the cloak from his face. After a few moments, he slowly rose to a sitting position. He was much thinner, very pale, his eyes sunk in his head, and his countenance sad and melancholy. That countenance generally illuminated with the fire of genius and animated by some ardent feeling. His voice was feeble and mournful. Whether it was four years of seemingly fruitless and thankless work, or the ascension to the position that he himself had sought, a man that he deemed so unworthy of that high office, Clay seemed very much a broken man. He had no confidence in the incoming administration, writing to a friend on February 24th that, quote, the president-elect, feeble in body and mind, and irresolute, is surrounded by a host of ravenous expectants of office and a core of newspaper editors gathered from the four quarters of the world. His intended cabinet is almost officially announced. Upon such a cabinet, comment is unnecessary. Clay would bid John Quincy Adams and Washington, D.C. a fond farewell on March 13, 1829, and began a journey back to his home, Ashland, being fed it along the way. By early April, he found himself at home and would set himself about putting his house and his farm in order. He ordered 50 head of Merino sheep, as well as a pair of two-year-old Durham shorthorn cattle. In addition, he enlarged his estate by purchasing more than 100 acres, as well as building an ice house. His purchases would not be restricted to livestock and land, however. During this time, he would also buy new enslaved people, as well as lease and sell others. Though he was a man who dreamed of progress and prosperity for the nation, we as students of history must keep in mind, when considering Clay, that he did not see in this vision the people of color who toiled and labored for Clay and his family's profit, and who were seen in the eyes of the law as being his property, just as much as the sheep that were raised on his farm or the house in which his family slept. His return to Ashland started to restore Clay's health and vitality, and by May 16th, he was already delivering a speech at a public dinner in Lexington before 3,000 people, in which he attacked the Jackson administration for its use of the patronage to reward political allies at the expense of the previous office holders, who, quote, are dismissed not only without trial of any sort, but without charge. He continued on that, quote, the object of President Jackson appears to be to destroy an existing equilibrium between the two parties to the late contest and to establish a monopoly. On he went through the majority of the speech before, in the end, turning his thoughts back to his native Kentuckians and his gratitude at having been taken in by them so many years ago. Quote, I came among you, now more than 30 years ago, an orphan boy, penniless, a stranger to you all, without friends, without the favor of the great. You took me up, cherished me, caressed me, protected me, honored me. You have constantly poured upon me a bold and unabated stream of innumerable favors. When I seemed deserted by almost the whole world and assailed by almost every tongue and pen and press, 
You have fearlessly and manfully stood by me with unsurpassed zeal and undiminished friendship. When I felt as if I should sink beneath the storm of abuse and attraction, which was violently raging around me, I found myself upheld and sustained by your encouraging voices and your approving smiles. The road had been difficult for Clay the past few years, and he may have felt battered and bruised, but Clay had emerged in 1829 still a vibrant and passionate orator and campaigner, and was seen by many as the best man to challenge Andrew Jackson should he seek a second term in 1832. Indeed, his attack speech so soon after leaving office proved that Clay himself thought that he was the man to take on Old Hickory, and that he felt it was not his campaign efforts, but rather the candidate that had been run that had been the problem in 1828. With Clay at the top of the ticket, though, and after nearly four years of what was no doubt going to be a disaster of a presidency, what could possibly go wrong with a Clay campaign in 1832? I hope you'll join me next time for an episode I'd like to call Years of Striving, or What Went Wrong with Clay's Runs for the White House. Before we conclude, I'd like to give special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. As a professed Clay fanatic, I can't imagine that this next episode is going to be Andrew's favorite to work on, but it is pivotal to understanding the story of this man who was such a major influence both on the life of our own William Henry Harrison and on the history of the United States. Should you like to commiserate with Andrew or have him work on your podcast or next audio project, please shoot an email his way to andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. Meanwhile, if you'd like to check out the sources used for this episode or find out all the ways that you can subscribe to this podcast, we're now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. Or you can copy and paste the feed URL into your favorite podcast app or just listen through the web. Make your way over to the website at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening, as well as for your patience in waiting to finish up the Clay story, as I took a few weeks off to get ahead. By being an episode or two ahead in terms of production, I'll be better able to ensure not only that episodes come out as scheduled, but that they're the best products in terms of research and scripting that I can produce for you. Hopefully you'll feel that the wait was worth it, and continue to tune in as we wrap up this series and move on to future episodes about our oft-forgotten ninth president. Thanks again, and take care, dear friends. Until next time.